Grab a seat. I want to say good morning. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online, especially those of you I know it's Memorial Day weekend. Maybe you're watching from the lake house, the beach house. I uh, hope that you get food poisoning. Uh, just, ki- just kidding. hope you have a wonderful time, relaxing time. Those of us who love the Lord Jesus are here in the Lord's house today. And so glad that you're here. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't send me any emails. Glad you're here. My name is Chris. We haven't met yet. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. Before we get cranked up with a message, I uh, just want to say something, put something before uh, those of you who happen to be new or newer to New Life, whether this is your first Sunday or maybe you've been here like a month, six months, eight months. If you have not been to one of our Journey 101 luncheons, I want you to know that's kind of like the first step here, right? So that's kind of the first date. You sign up for one of those. We do one every seven or eight weeks. Those happen uh, upstairs right after this service, the 11 o'clock service, and the next luncheon is next week, so one one week uh, from today. And so if you haven't signed up, you haven't participated in a Journey 101 luncheon, I want to encourage you to do that. We'll just hang out for about an hour. We'll feed you some free food. We hang out, I'll be there, and we just kind of cast a little bit of vision about who we are as a faith family and uh, where we, we think God is taking us as a community uh, of faith. And so uh, let me encourage you, register for that. You can do that on our website, newlifeofashville.com, next steps. You can also do it at the desk uh, in the lobby as you exit. Uh, again, uh, we'll, we'll provide a meal for you. If you've got little kids, if you register today, we will have child care for you if you wait after today. Uh, that window will close. So if you got little ones, go ahead and register today uh, when you leave. All right, we're back in Daniel chapter uh, four today. Now, if you're new, that's, that's kind of what we do here. We, we walk through books of the Bible. And so we started the year in the New Testament book of First Thessalonians. We're now in week uh, four of the book of Daniel. So we kind of mix and match Old Testament, New Testament. We want you to get a steady diet of all of God's word. Uh, throughout the year, we will sprinkle in some, some topical series to kind of fill gaps or maybe to speak to uh, a specific topic that's really hot in our culture or something that's going on in the, the life of our body. But, but that's our bread and butter, right? It's just kind of going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, through books of the Bible. And the reason that we do that is because we believe the Bible is, is actually God's word to us. Like it, these scriptures, these ancient scriptures, we believe they're alive, they're active, they're as relevant today as, as they were the moment they were penned so many years ago. And so uh, that's just who we are. That's what we do here. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and head for Daniel chapter 4. That's where we're going to hang out. And uh, one of the things I want to talk to you today about from Daniel chapter 4 is the subject of pride. Pride, humility, how God tends to work in and through those things in our lives to point uh, us to himself. You know, pride is arguably uh, one of the most dangerous traps that we can fall into. Because I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but pride is something that is incredibly easy to see in other people, but almost impossible to see in ourselves. Have you noticed that? Like if you're ever around somebody, you have lunch with them, you're having coffee with them, maybe just meet them at Ingalls like, like Pastor Mike or whatever, you're like, man, this guy is arrogant, <laughs> you know? Or this chick is arrogant. She can't stop talking about herself and their pride begins to upset our pride, right? And so it's very, very easy to see in somebody else, but almost impossible to t- detect uh, in, in ourselves. I said this in the, the 915. Uh, I've been in uh, vocational ministry now for almost 16 years. And, uh, and people have, man, they have shared 
struggles and uh, sin issues, uh, about just about everything you can imagine, right? From, from sexual sin or struggles uh, with food addiction or alcohol addiction or drug addiction, like anything you can imagine. Do you know one thing nobody has ever confessed to me? The sin of pride. Like in 16 years, not one single person has ever come to me and said, hey, Chris, hey, bro, look, can, can, I, can I talk to you about something? I just got this thing in my life right now that's, I know it's not healthy for me. I know it's not pleasing to the Lord, but, it, but it's pride. Could you pray that God would strip me of, of this pride? Like never, not once has that ever happened, right? It's, it's the invisible sin. And I think as such, maybe the most dangerous uh, sin, the most lethal sin, I appreciate the way, the way C.S. Lewis, the, the famous uh, author, put it. This will be on the screens from you. This is from uh, his famous book, Mere Christianity, one of the, the classics of the faith. If you haven't read it, you probably should read it. Um, but, but this is what Lewis says about pride. He says, for pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Ow. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you, namely God. All of that to say, church family, pride is a really big deal. And almost every single person in this room watching online has been infected with the virus of pride, whether you realize it or not. And what begins to happen over time as the years go on is this invisible virus called pride will begin to rot out your relationships. It will begin to poison those around you and eventually begin to destroy everything good that God wants to do in and through your life. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is God in his goodness has given us an antidote to the deadly virus of pride. It'll come as no surprise to you that that antidote is humility. We're gonna find out uh, where we get that type of humility, where we find it in our text this morning in Daniel chapter four. Now, if you've been with us for the last uh, few weeks, you know that one of the central characters in the book of Daniel so far has been this dude named Nebuchadnezzar, right? King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this, this is not a good guy, right? He's, he's kind of this bloodthirsty guy. He's a, he's a bad guy, a, a brutal dude. He wakes up in the morning and, and people die. This is not the guy you want to take your family on vacation with. But what we see in chapter 4 is basically his spiritual autobiography. As we would say in the church world, his testimony, right? How he met the Lord, which is incredible. Because this guy is maybe the most unlikely guy in history, completely full of himself, he gets humbled, and he comes to know God. This is amazing, and this is his story. Let's start in verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, his story in his words, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So this is King Nebuchadnezzar's message to you from 2,600 years ago. He's got something to say to you. Peace be multiplied to you. Verse 2, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So what? <laughs> this is the same guy, you'll remember last week, just threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a fiery furnace for not bowing down and worshiping his false gods. And now he's praising God, the Most High? 
Now, what comes next, what we're about to read, scholars say is a, is a poem. If we could read it in the original languages, it, it, it would kind of rhyme. It would sound a nice to the ear, a song. Some would call it a doxology. He actually opens chapter 4 and closes chapter 4 with a worship song. If you could believe it, King Nebuchadnezzar is now writing worship songs to God. This is wild, right? This is Vladimir Putin to Mike Watkins, right? It, it, just un, unbelievable, right? As unbelievable as it would be if Vladimir Putin was up here six months from now leading us in a chorus of worship, that is how incredible and insane this is that we have King Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty pagan king, writing worship songs to the God of the Bible. This is what he says. This is his, his first song, starting in verse 3. He says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, this is not the same guy we just saw in chapter 3 throwing believers into fiery furnaces. Like something has happened, something has changed. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is going to give us the whole story, the whole rundown. I would argue you could make a really good movie out of this. But, but chapter 4 is really kind of broken down into three movements. I'm going to put it on the screens for you right now. So first 18 verses, what we're going to see is a personal crisis. All right? So Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in a personal crisis. Many of you maybe are there today. The next segment of the chapter, we're going to see a courageous and compassionate witness, which I think is an instructive for us as believers in our modern-day Babylon. And then lastly, what we're going to see, my favorite part of the whole chapter, is the miraculous transformation. So that's kind of, kind of the order of what we're going to tackle this morning. I'll give you a couple application points at the end, and then we'll sing and we'll be done. Okay, but before we jump in, uh, let's, let's take a moment, let's pause, and let's pray. And let's ask God to speak to us through his word by the power of his spirit. I also want to just, just pause and pray specifically uh, for the tragedy that we saw this week uh, right outside of uh, San Antonio, Texas, in Uvalde, a small little town uh, where 19 innocent elementary age kids were, were gunned down and were murdered uh, in cold blood. And uh, listen, guys, I, I'm, I'm just telling you, I don't, I don't have all the political answers I'm not, a, I'm not a lawmaker. Um, nobody in Washington, D.C. is blowing up my phone anyway, so it doesn't really matter what I think. But here's what I know as a pastor. The Word tells us to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. And what I know is there are 19 families right now that woke up with somebody missing in their house. And many of them maybe are sitting in a church just like this, and there's an empty seat right beside them where their little boy or their little girl was sitting last week. And that's not okay. And so let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come to you, and our confession is that, man, what we see in the world is so broken. We see so much evil. God, in our hearts, just cry out, God, when, when is enough enough? God, when are you going to come back? We, we love that you're a loving God, but where's your, where's your justice for evil, God? And so we, we lift up these 19, 20 families who are grieving, who are mourning, God, and we want to obey your word. We want to mourn with them. God, help our hearts not become desensitized to, to the evil in the world just because we see it happening so much. Help us grieve. Help us to cry real tears with those who are crying real tears because we know that you care about them, Father. So we ask now that you would be with those families, Father, that 
are mourning this morning, that are crying this morning, that are still in shock, God. We pray that your spirit would be ever-present with them, that they would fill you in a real tangible way, uh, in a way that they really couldn't even explain, that we couldn't explain. And that somehow, out of this tragedy, you would, as only you can, bring something uh, beautiful about. And we don't know what that looks like. We don't know how that happens, God. It just seems like a lost cause to us. But we know that we're not God, you are. And so we ask that you would turn these ashes into something beautiful. And God, I pray for our own hearts. Uh, many of us walk in here with our own set of tragedies and, and burdens and things that are weighing our spirits down. Maybe not as heavy as, as those families, but still heavy to us. And so, God, I pray that you would help lift the clouds, that you would uh, pull back the veil so that we could see uh, just a glimpse of you this morning, that we could see a picture of your glory, that our hearts would be encouraged, and that we would walk out of here as better men and women than we walked in as. And we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's the story. Chapter 4, verse 4, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to tell you his story. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. This is his way of saying things were going hunky-dory, right? Things are good. Many of you, that's where you're at. Things are going pretty well. Like your health is good. Your relationships are pretty good. Your bank account looks all right. Things are, things are relatively good in life. Well, that's where Nebuchadnezzar is in verse 4. But then verse 5 happens. And he says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. Now, let me just pause there and say this. There's not a single person in this room watching online that, that's not one single instant, one single phone call, one single text message, one single report from the doctor away from experiencing what King Nebuchadnezzar did. Right? It can be all hunky-dory today, and all it takes is one thing, one call, one text message to flip your world upside down. That's exactly what we see happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions, his, his dreams, he says, of my head alarmed me. Now, you've got to understand this. This is, a, this is a man that had the world by the tail. Everything you can imagine, everything most of us are chasing in life, riches, fame, power, Women never would have said no to this guy. He had everything anybody could ever want. In fact, history tells us that he built the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, just because he could. One of his wives was apparently from a, a very green, hilly area. She missed the mountains. She missed the greenery. He just constructed these hanging gardens. The world had never even seen anything like this. This dude had it all, and he knows he has it all. And yet the interesting thing is no amount of money no amount of fame, no amount of power can buy inner peace. That's where he's at. That's where some of you are at. So he's having these dreams. They're terrifying to him. They're scaring the junk out of him. This is, by the way, the second time this has happened to the king. You remember back in chapter 2, he also had a nightmare. And so he does the same thing he did last time he has a nightmare. Instead of calling Daniel in and hearing what God has to say about it, he calls in all the pagan Babylonian magicians and enchanters and wise men. And you kind of think as you're reading it, like, dude, why are you doing that again? Like, didn't you learn your lesson? Like, like just go to God first. Why are, you, why are you going through all these wrong sources to figure out what's going on in your life? But the reality is we are guilty of the same darn thing in our lives so often. Because for so many of us so often, man, we turn to God's word as a last resort. And I wonder, why, why is that, man? Why, why do we keep going to other sources that have no answers for us? Right, whether it's a toxic relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or 
maybe an unhealthy relationship that some of us might have with food or drink or sex or whatever it is. And I think if most of us were honest this morning, we would just have to admit that the reason that we run to all these other sources before we run to God is because we have an inkling that God might tell us something that we don't want to hear or something we don't want to do, right? So we're like, man, he's our, he's our last resort because we, we kind of know what he's going to say already. And I, and I don't, I don't want to do what I know he's going to tell me to do, right? We don't want to hear that we need to break up with that toxic boyfriend or that toxic girlfriend that's making you pass boundaries that you don't want to pass. We don't want to hear that maybe we have a generosity problem, right? That we're living stingy lifestyles or that we have a, a food addiction or a drink addiction or a porn addiction or whatever it is. Now, we, we don't want to hear that. And so typically it takes a personal crisis that begins to escalate in our lives that will finally eventually drive us to God. And that's what we see happening with the great king here. Now, what was this troubling dream? That's kind of what I'm thinking as I'm working through this narrative. I'm like, this dude has it all. What kind of dream could rock his world in this way? Well, he's going to tell us exactly what the dream is. Look at verse 10. He says, the visions of my head... As I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. This is an impressive tree, y'all. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. Like, so far, I don't see anything wrong. This seems like a pretty cool dream to me. Verse 13, I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with a beast in the grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Okay, this doesn't sound as pleasant as it did in the beginning. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's Babylonian name, so just think Daniel when you see that name. And you, O Daniel, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me the interpretation but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Or your translation may say, of the holy God is in you. So Nebuchadnezzar sees this magnificent tree in his dream. Starts off well. It's incredible. looks awesome and kind of extends to the sky, to the end of the earth. There's all kinds of fruit on it. Feeds everybody on planet earth. It provides shade. Looks pretty awesome. It kind of reminds me, if you guys remember that movie, uh, probably five, ten years ago that came out called Avatar, where those weird blue people kind of run around. They lived in this, this tree, this huge tree in the middle. Like, that, that's kind of what I, what I picture. Except this would have been more magnificent than anything we've ever seen on a, on a movie screen. So all is going well, and all of a sudden an angel or a heavenly messenger shows up and says, hey, hey man, we're going to chop this thing down. 
We're about to chop this thing down. We're going to lop off the branches. We're going to scatter all its fruit. Now, I suspect even in that moment, as the dream was happening, that Nebuchadnezzar had an inkling that this was about him, which is why he was terrified. Right? This is bad news, isn't it? But then we get, a, we get a hopeful word. Leave the stump and the roots. In other words, the tree will be brought low, but not destroyed. And that's one of the things I got to tell you guys, I, I really love about the Bible. The Bible oftentimes is painfully truthful, but it is always hopeful in its truth. And the messenger says, hey, listen, this, this stump is going to become, or, or the person that this stump rep represents is going to become like a wild beast for seven periods of time. Now, scholars kind of debate, does that mean seven years? Maybe it did mean seven years. Uh, seven was also the number of completion in the Bible, so it could have meant uh, basically as long as it takes for this person to recognize that God is God and, and he is not. So, so quite the dream, right? But the question is, uh, what, what does it mean? Again, I think Nebuchadnezzar has an idea, which is why he goes to his own enchanters first, because he didn't want to hear the truth. But finally, finally he goes to Daniel. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. Now that, that word dismayed is a, is a strong word. Daniel hears the dream and he's, he's wrecked by it as well. He's, he's really disturbed by it. And his thoughts alarmed him. Then the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, or Daniel, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. He's so upset, the king starts to counsel him, comfort him. Belteshazzar, Daniel answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. And in Daniel, in this little action, this, this little section, we see a courageous and a compassionate witness. Right? Courage to speak the hard word to a king, but compassion in that he gets no pleasure out of delivering bad news. And I think, man, what a blueprint for us, isn't it? As modern-day Christians, as modern-day followers of Jesus in our own version of Babylon, man, this is stunning because Daniel instantly knows what this dream is about. And he's heartbroken for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I, I believe that Daniel had actually come to, to know and care deeply about this pagan king, which is incredible when you consider that this is the same guy that destroyed Daniel's country. Like he, he went in and absolutely ravaged Jerusalem, destroyed Israel, brought his people into slavery. He was a POW himself. I mean, gosh, even the last chapter, he tried to burn his three friends alive in a fiery furnace. Like Daniel had every reason to hate this man with a capital H. Like every reason to celebrate anything bad that could happen to him. And I wonder, man, how many of us, if put in the same situation, would have said to the king in that moment, or at least thought, <laughs> I know what the dream means, son. You ha you've had this coming for a while. Man, you, you, you're, you're a terrible human being. You, you made your bed. Now you're going to lie in it, you sleazebag of a king. You're finally going to get what you want. Now, how many of us would be there? But not Daniel. Daniel's heartbroken for this man. And I think a lesson for us there, man, what, what is our heart posture towards those in our culture who wrong us, who mistreat us, who ostracize us, who try to cancel us because of who we follow and what we believe? Is our heart posture one of, of, of a desire for revenge, 
or maybe even low-key hatred. No, 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 we would never publicize that. We would never articulate that. You would never put that on your Facebook or Instagram. But, but is there this kind of seething, low-key hatred for people that are not like us in our culture? Or do we have a desire that God would redeem them the same way that he has redeemed us? Do we love our enemies the way that Jesus has commanded that we love our enemies? Daniel genuinely cares for the well-being of the guy that by all accounts, he should have hated, but he doesn't. And he shows us both courage and he shows us compassion. And Daniel continues as he interprets the dream for the king. Verse 20 says, the tree you saw, verse 22, it is you, O king, who have become, who, I'm sorry, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men, that your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So Daniel goes, King, man, I wish I didn't have to say this. It breaks my heart for me to tell you, but I, I, know, I know what the dream means. And King, the tree's you. And I wish it wasn't true because I've come to care for you, King. In fact, I wish this dream were for anybody else but you. I wish it were for your enemies. But King, I gotta tell you, I have to love you enough to tell you the hard truths. Which by the way, dear brother and sister, I, I believe that this is one thing our culture is sorely lacking right now. Because in our culture today, we kind of perpetuate this, I think, terribly damaging, false narrative that love never confronts, love never corrects, and love never challenges. That love only affirms and celebrates. And I'm here to tell you today, based on the authority of God's word, that the biblical definition of love, love in God's economy, real love, must care enough to say the hard things. Now, always with compassion, never, never with anger, never with hatred in our hearts. But we have to care for other people and love people enough to say the hard truths. We have to do that for the best of the other people. And so Daniel goes, listen, king, the Lord, I don't want to tell you this, but the Lord is going to bring you low. He's going to drive you out into the wilderness where you're going to live like a beast in the field until you acknowledge that God is God and you are not king. And I wonder how many of you watching online or in the room this morning, you're there right now, man, you are living in the wilderness not because God wants you there, but because you're choosing sin over God. And you're choosing your way over God's way. And friend, listen to me, that always leads to a wilderness in our lives of one sort or the other. But Daniel's heartbroken over this. And so he begins to plead with the king. Look at verse number 27. Daniel says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Like, please listen to me, man. Like, this is serious. I care about you. Please listen to me. Listen to what he says. Break off your sins. Now notice that Daniel actually calls sin, sin. 
Right? He doesn't gloss over and say, oh, this is your choice, or you were born this way, so let's just celebrate it. He's like, man, I love you. I love you enough. I'm telling you, break off your sins. God has a better plan for your life. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. In other words, following God's path instead of your path. And your iniquities, another word for sin, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. In church family, Daniel's plea that day is my plea to you this day. Wouldn't you turn away from your sin today to God? Wouldn't you avoid the disaster that's barreling down the train tracks of your life heading towards you right now in this moment? Daniel cares for this king, and so he's begging, he's pleading, please, king, it doesn't have to be this way. Turn to God. Find your hope in him. He wants to bless you. Sadly, as we see in the narrative, the king doesn't heed his advice. He ignores Daniel's courageous and compassionate pleas. He ignores the word from God, in fact, for an entire year before God begins to execute his judgment. And you might be wondering, like, why, why did God let him off the hook for an entire year? And I'll tell you why I think it is. I think it's because we serve a God who is a compassionate God who is a merciful God, who is a good God, who is a long-suffering God, who doesn't want to see us suffer, wants to draw us to repentance and relationship with him. And so you just imagine the conversations that Daniel would have had with Nebuchadnezzar for that entire year. How many times did he plead with him? Please, king, would you turn from your sins? Would you, would you turn to God? Like, it doesn't have to go down this way. I don't want to see you suffer. I don't think God wants to see you suffer. Like, it doesn't have to go down this way. And listen, guys, before we get too upset with King Nebuchadnezzar, we can be guilty of doing the same darn thing in our lives, can't we? Because we know what our sin is. We know what our struggles are. But oftentimes, our heart's attitude, again, we would never articulate this. Our heart's attitude is, ah, uh, you know what? God's going to overlook my sin. Right, like my, my, my porn addiction, it's not that big a deal. Like I could be having an affair on my wife or my husband, so pretty sure God would prefer me to do, be addicted to porn than actually out having affairs. Yeah, I'm, I'm sleeping around with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I know we're not married, but, you know, we kind of love each other-ish, you know? So that can't be like that bad, right? Or, yeah, I don't live a generous life in the kingdom of God, but you know what? I got bills to pay, and plus I love to get a, a large Starbucks on the way to work every single day, right? So this is not a huge deal. Like God's not gonna deal with me. He's not gonna bring any kind of chastisement or discipline in my life. Like God may, may not overlook the sin in everybody else's life, but I'm kind of special. And if that's where you're at, man, let me just say to you, friend, be careful. Because the word says God will not be mocked. In fact, it's his love that demands his discipline in our lives. So the narrative continues in verse 28. For a year, God has been gracious, he's been compassionate, Daniel's been calling him to repentance. He ignores the conviction of the spirit, he ignores the word of God coming from Daniel. And this is what happens in verse 28, let this be a warning to us. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built my mighty power? Just hear the pride dripping from his thought process, his internal monologue, which I have built by my mighty power. He looks over his vast kingdom and he goes, I did it. It's me. My hard work, my work ethic, my intellect, my military prowess. I have done all of this. 
I have built my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Just a height of arrogance. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven that said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among man, among man, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And so the word of the Lord comes to pass, as it always does, friend. Nebuchadnezzar literally goes mad. He loses his mind. He's driven into the wilderness, which is what they did with insane people back then. He becomes like a beast of the field, eating grass. You can picture this once great king crawling around on all fours, long matted hair. Right? It says he, from a distance, his hair was so long and matted, it, it appeared like it was eagle's feathers. His fingernails are so unkept and long, look like, like eagle's talons. My, my. Now, this condition, by the way, modern psychologists, we know this now, we didn't, we, they wouldn't have known it back then, is a, it's an actual mental disorder. This is a real thing, though rare, it so happens today, called boanthropy, where one imagines himself or herself as, as livestock, as a cow or an ox, and begins to behave like one. So here's the one who saw himself as Superman. He's now living as subhuman. And so it is, friend, with all sin. Starting with the sin of pride, trickling down into every other form of sin that besets the human condition. Now I think this quote sums it up well. I'll put this on the screens for you. You've probably heard this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Now friend, I've been there. I bet many of you have as well. I'd wager some of you are there right now. And the good news for you today is that God is merciful and that we don't have to stay in that place. In fact, God delights to rescue, to deliver. It's kind of his specialty, actually. If you go back all throughout history, he delights to rescue his sons, to rescue his daughters. And now in the final act of chapter four, the final movement, my favorite part, we see this miraculous transformation. Look with me, if you would, at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. So finally, he begins to, to look to God as his source for, for life and hope and purpose. I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. Now he's, begin, he's going to begin his, his second hymn, his second praise song. And this is what he writes as he praises the God of the Bible. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 36, he continues, at the same time, my reason returned to me, 
And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom again, and still more greatness was added to me. Guys, how good is God? This bloodthirsty, rebellious king who shook his fist in the face of God his whole life. And yet he repents and he turns to God and he returns his kingdom to me to him and then even gives him a greater kingdom than he'd ever experienced before. This is the God of mercy. He's a good God. He cares for us. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol. That means to lift high the name and honor the king of heaven. The mightiest king on earth has now found a king that he bows the knee to, the king of heaven. For all his works are right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And Nebuchadnezzar now steps out of our story into the pages of history, and we never hear from him again. Now, let me, let me just pause here and say one, one little thing before we move on. I, I promise you, as King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar began his journey, his faith journey, he was not a biblical theologian. He was not a pastor. He was, he was not a missionary. But what he had was his story. And I just want to encourage you, man, I think there are so many believers today, especially in our culture where, man, the heat's getting turned up on Christianity and what we believe and believers and all this kind of, we can be very, very intimidated to share our faith in our workplace, our school place, our neighborhood, the park, wherever it is, because we kind of think, man, well, what if somebody challenges me, man? I'm not a Bible scholar. Like, what if they ask me about the problem of evil? And I just want to encourage you, man, the most powerful spiritual weapon you have oftentimes is your story. You know, we want to know why? Because nobody can refute your story. King Nebuchadnezzar didn't have all of his theology, right? But what he knew was he had met God in the wilderness and that God transformed his life. And that's what we have in our culture today. And so the once tyrant king meets the king of heaven in the wilderness and he's now a God lover, a God follower. Now listen, guys, I, I believe King Nebuchadnezzar will be in heaven. Now, I, I, look, I look forward to the day. I was thinking about this this week as I was studying the chapter. Man, I look forward to, day, to the day where we're in the new heavens and the new earth, man, and we're sitting at the great feasting table, and I want to share a meal with Nebuchadnezzar. And I just want to sit right by that sucker, and maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be sitting right across the, right across the way, right? And just kind of picture it, right? What, what would that be like? You kind of just picture Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, teasing him, like, Hey, you remember that time you tried to burn us in a fire? You thought God couldn't rescue us? <laughs> like, don't give this guy, don't give this guy any, any matches, man. He's a bit of a pyro, you know. And you just picture King Nebuchadnezzar just shaking his head. Man, you boys been telling that story for like a hundred million years up here. When you're gonna get a new story, right? And they're like, hey, man, we're just teasing. We, you know, we love you, bro. Let's go climb Mount Everest again. All right, what's that gonna be like? incredible right what what a story and people say that the bible is boring listen listen the bible is not boring i would argue it's the most relevant thing on planet earth today and the good news is the god who rescued rescued nebuchadnezzar 2600 years ago is the same god who can rescue you today friend same god same power now let me just give you three practical applications and then we'll We'll land the plane. Here's number one on the screens for you it's in the moment of personal crisis that god often speaks loudest many of you already know that to be true I know that to be true. I hate that. I wish it wasn't the case, but it's oftentimes in the flames that we hear God's voice clearest. It's been said, God wounds so that he might heal. He brings low so that he might exalt high. 
It's like Spurgeon, the famous uh, pastor that I quote almost every week, uh, the English pastor. This is what he said. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So I just want to say, man, if you're in a personal crisis today, as I'm sure many of you are, don't look down to sin. Don't look inward to yourself. Look up to heaven, just like Nebuchadnezzar is. That's the only place you're going to find your answer. Here's a second take-home truth. Number two, the world is in desperate need for courageous and compassionate witnesses. Desperate need. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Most of us tend to lean in one direction or the other. So I would just guess probably half of you in this room, you're just naturally, you're a courageous truth teller, but you got very little compassion, right? And so what's gonna happen to you is the world's gonna tune you out because you're gonna sound like a jerk to them. The other half of you are what I would describe as kind of like bleeding heart softies. I mean, you just got tons of compassion for people, but you got, you got no courage at all to speak truth in the face of adversity. And listen, guys, I wanna tell you, neither one is good enough. The Christian life demands both from us, courage and compassion. As Paul says in Ephesians, truth and love. It's not a multiple choice question. We only get to choose one. It's always truth and love, simultaneous, courage and compassion. Nebuchadnezzar needed that 2,600 years ago. The people that you know and love need that today. So let's be that. Number three, real transformation is possible. Now, I love this about this story. If God can reach down and pluck King Nebuchadnezzar out of darkness and place him into the kingdom of light, he can do the same thing for you today, friend. And not only can he do that for you, he can do that for the person in your life right now, and some of you are picturing him right now, that you think is a lost cause. Could be a sibling, it could be a parent, it could be a a wayward child, it could be a friend, someone that you've been praying for for years. Some of you have been praying for somebody for decades, and I'm just here telling you today, keep on praying. If you're still breathing, if they're still breathing, God is not done. I want to close. Let me just invite you to bow your heads with me as the band comes. Close your eyes, whether you're here online. This is nothing spiritual, nothing magical about this. Just kind of want to eliminate distractions so you can do business with God just, just for a minute. And here's what I want to close with. As impressive as King Nebuchadnezzar was, right? All the hanging gardens, the military prowess, the glory of his kingdom. What I want you to know this morning is that there's another king, another kingdom that dwarfs all earthly kings and kingdoms. And this king willingly humbled himself. He didn't have to get humbled by God. He willingly humbled himself and he came into our wilderness to live a perfect life, the one that we should have lived but we couldn't because we're all broken and we're all sinful. And not only did he live that perfect life on your behalf, but he died a brutal, substitutionary death to pay for your rebellion against God, to pay for my sin against a perfect and holy God. But he didn't stay in that grave. Just like he said he would three days later, he walked out and he now offers us freedom and forgiveness and hope and purpose in life. Friend, Jesus is the solution to the inner peace that eludes you. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar was searching and he was knocking on all the wrong doors and he couldn't find it until he finally looked up to heaven and surrendered his life to the king of heaven. I'm just telling you, friend, that's where you're gonna find your inner peace and your purpose and your forgiveness as well. Now listen, if you're here, you're online, you don't know the king of kings, let me just say, let's chat, let's talk. 
If you're online, your service host is on there, they would love to talk with you. If you're in the room, I'm going to be up here right after we sing this last song. There's going to be some other pastors milling around, some prayer partners. Come talk to us, man. We would love to pray with you and share more about how you can start an authentic, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, the King of Heaven. Now, if you're here and you're already Team Jesus, man, like you, you know him, you've already bowed the knee, you've already surrendered your life to him, I just want to say to you, to us, man, it's time for us to be about the king's business. It's time for us to start living courageously and compassionately in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our apartment complexes. Starting right now, when we walk out of this room for the good of the world, for the glory of King Jesus who deserves it all. Let's pray then. We're going to sing, Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and we are, we're so grateful that you love us enough to bring us low to lift us high. That you love us deeply enough to wound us in order to heal us. And Father, I pray for my friends in the room online right now that are, man, they're just walking in the wilderness. I pray that they wouldn't look to their sin. I pray that they wouldn't look to themselves or their friends or to culture, but they would lift their eyes towards heaven, that they would find the one who created them, the one who loves them, longs to know them and have a relationship with them, who has a plan and purpose for their lives. And I pray, God, that you would give them courage right now to just surrender their lives in their own words, in their own head, and give their lives to Jesus and begin to follow you to find that hope that Nebuchadnezzar found so many years ago, God. We love you. Father, we can't thank you enough for sending Jesus on a rescue mission for us, for loving us while we were still in our sin, for loving us while we were your enemies. So God, would you help us to live out a life that's worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us? And we pray, we ask all these things in his beautiful name. Amen. Just let's stand, let's worship the King.